This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. I believe we need to do five things. First of all, to create momentum for the Great Reset. The Great Reset is a welcome recognition that this human tragedy must be a wake-up call. The Great Reset. The Great Opportunity for Reset. The Great Reset. Great Reset. For the Great Reset we're talking about here. In short, we need a great reset. Good morning, and uh, wonderful that uh, that you could be here. And and uh, this um, this series that we're undertaking is part of uh, a series that I undertake to do every year. It's part of it forms part of what's known as the May Day series, um, and we we undertake it in the month of May, just to make it simple reminder. So it is the May Day series. It's also got another little connotation to it. Um, and every year we undertake this for a specific reason, and that is that exactly as um, Brother Eric mentioned last week or the week before, um, there are very, very few churches who teach on prophecy. And this has come together during a time where there are very few pastors who know what the Bible teaches. There are very few who read their Bibles on a regular basis, but more than that, they are confused with a multitude of different translations available to them. They pick and choose what they think it might say, but there is obscurity within their minds. They have no ability to be able to discern the truth because there are no links coming back in to the Scriptures. And the book of Revelation is a book that, as I mentioned before, it's at the end of the Bible, it's at the end of the book, and it presumes that you know the rest of it because everything... So, so not everything, well, I, I would say everything, links back to the book of Revelation. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you read, so much of it links back to the book of Revelation. It is such a pivotal book. But the book of Revelation isn't just it. You know, we've obviously got prophecy in many other books of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. But you also have it in the New. You have it in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. You have it in Luke chapter, chapter 21, Mark chapter 13. You've got it in the book of Daniel. You look at the seven chapters, six chapters from the book of Daniel, from chapter 7 right through to chapter 12. It's all prophecy. The first part of the book of Daniel is historical. The second half of the book of Daniel is prophetic. But that's not all. You've also got Ezekiel. You've got Isaiah. You've got Zechariah. You've got all the minor prophets. A third of the Bible is prophecy. That is, that really should, if any of you go into your magazines and look at your horoscope and you're not reading your Bible, you've got a real problem. You know, seriously. If any of you hold on to, I was sharing about prophecy with a lady and she was like, yeah, Nostradamus was like that. Nostradamus was nothing like that, you know. 
None of his things that he so-called prophesied came to pass so specifically and so exact. But the Bible does. It promises to be absolutely specific. What we're dealing with in this particular series at the moment is the millennium of the Lord Jesus Christ, the millennial reign of Christ. Millennium means a thousand, one thousand year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. An idea that since the time of Augustine and Origen had been thought of as allegorical. Oh, it's him reigning in your heart and all that sort of thing. No, no. As we go through the, the at least the first part of the sermon this morning, you're going to see that it's not allegorical that it is very, very specific and very, very clear. So before I enter into it and before I, I, I key off the introduction, but um, let's, let's open a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, dear Lord, in this, dear Lord, I need you oh, just as much as every other time I preach. I know, dear Father, that you will come soon and I have no idea when. And I ask and pray, dear Lord, that you would help me to present this message and this sermon even as if it would be my last. I pray, dear Lord, that those who would hear it would hear it as if it was their last. I pray, dear Lord, that there would be hearts willing to understand a desire to know the truth of the Scriptures, but also, dear Lord, that they may be wonderfully encouraged and have their eyes open to the world that they're living in and to make that choice of where they will stand when the time comes, if the time comes. We look for your coming, dear Lord. But we also, dear Father, need the strength and the hope and the joy and the blessing and faith to endure, dear Lord, until you come. I pray, dear Father, you would be with us in every way this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. We, the greatest reset that I'm referring to is the greatest earthly reset that can ever come to pass, and that is the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. The title of the series of messages with regards to the greatest reset, seeks to see and find the distinction between the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ and what the plan is that they have within the world. And I can, it, there is no chance that I can actually bring out everything because it is astounding how this is, this is Alice in Wonderland. You've got no idea how far and how deep the rabbit hole goes. And it is very far indeed. It's something that I have studied for over 20 years. I'm not ignorant to the world and the direction that the world is moving to, though many, many seem to be. What we have here and what we're going to be looking at here is how the World Economic Forum, through their idea of the Great Reset, is actually holding on to an idea that is fairly ancient, and we'll touch on that in a moment. The agenda is there, the testified here with an interesting inspiration by the Prince of Wales, the Attorney General of the United States, and the founder of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab. You saw him at the end. We need a great reset. He should be in a James Bond movie, that guy, you know, the evil, evil, I don't know who he is, but anyway. What we recognise from this is that people speak about this as a conspiracy. I remember speaking to a pastor a little while ago and I told him about the Great Reset. And this was in roughly... March last year, no, no, it wasn't March, May, May last year, not May last year, May 2020. So the pandemic with regards to COVID had only been out in, in or known about since January. By May, by April, they had already established the website with regards to the Great Reset. And they'd already interviewed a whole bunch of the elites from around the world 
to talk about the Great Reset. And it gave me the distinct impression that this was a, um, this crisis was an opportunity waited for at the very least. And that they were looking at this as the opportunity to enact something that they'd been planning for a long time. And this is what we see here. In the book, Klaus Schwab makes clear he plans, uh, his plans respecting a temporary Luciferian alteration to the entire state of the world. And he refers to it as the Great Reset. But this is today's title of the effort. It's not the old title. It's long been known as and still known today as the New World Order. But it also goes by other names. Those names are simply World Order or New International Order or Global Governance or World Government. World Government. Today that seems to be the the going phrase, although the statement for the new world order doesn't seem to have gone away and we'll we'll see that the new world order however is anything but new it is as ancient as the tower of babel during the time that god spoke about in the book of genesis this desire for a government to rule over all people and govern over all people and to reach up into the heights of heaven has been there for thousands of years Today, that same Tower of Babel is testified to by the headquarters of the European Union in the, in the nation of Brussels. Look up the headquarters of the, uh, of the European Union in Brussels and then have a picture of the believed Tower of Babel on one side and have a look at that one and you'll see that the two come together perfectly. And I'll probably bring that up in another, another message coming forward anyway. This is part of it. Um, How does this temporary world order, which is supposed to rise like a phoenix out of the ashes, and I'll show you some imagery of that, how do we see that that will end? Will it end in prosperity? Will it, the promises that it makes, will it actually be fulfilled? Well, the world seems to think it will. And the Bible teaches something completely different. And the reality of what's been spoken about by many, many people also speak of it as completely different. The question, however, that I pray that you would consider as we, can, as we look at the distinction between these two kingdoms is simply having a look at the failure of this coming reset to the greatest reset of all, which is the millennial rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we only got a couple of points this morning. 1,000 years, 1,000 years, there's going to be a reset. 100% it's going to happen. And it'll be the greatest reset of this present world in the history of mankind. And it'll make the current effort that is also probably the greatest that's ever been seen in the history of mankind, it'll make that pale into insignificance. The millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ will demonstrate to the world the glory of a righteous kingdom. What a distinction it's going to be. Such a distinction from the world that we're living in now, such a distinction from the world that they're looking at creating. It'll be a glorious kingdom and it'll have the ruin of the unrighteous kingdom that we're living in today as its backdrop. It's almost as if God wants to demonstrate to man how just government works. He wants to demonstrate to man how when Christ is ruling and reigning, the prosperity and the blessing that's going to come from that reign would be unlike anything that we will ever see in history. And we're going to be talking a lot about all the different things that are going to happen during that time. Strange kingdom, but one that is absolutely wonderful. 
Now, we compare that, however, to Satan's governing at the height of this kingdom that he's looking at building up, the height of it, it's only going to last seven years. Seven years. And the time that he's actually going to be sitting on the throne, that believing himself to be God and worshipped as God, that's only about three and a half years. His kingdom is a fractured kingdom. It's divided. It's a divided kingdom. Just like iron is not mixed with miry clay, it will not be able to mingle together. It will not be able to come together. So we should be expecting to see today evidence of division within the world. I don't know. Can you see it anywhere? There should be evidence of division. Why? Because Daniel chapter 2 refers to the final kingdom being iron and clay, being one that will endure for that entire period right up until the coming of Christ. There will be a separated community within this nation, within this world. There will be people who will be living in one way and there will be people who are, I believe, the iron and the strength of the iron living completely given over to this, to this, uh, to this current endeavour. His kingdom is going to be rent by wars, by economic ruin, by plagues, by hunger, by violence, by global catastrophic events. It'll be unjust and unholy and will manifest the nature of its ruler perfectly. By contrast, the earthly reign of the Lord Jesus Christ will be 1,000 years plus eternity. It's interesting how you see that within the scriptures. You don't actually see him just reigning for a thousand years. It seems to move on into eternity. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, the Bible says. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be reigning during that time. Literally, literally. His kingdom is a united kingdom. It is holy, it is righteous and with just government. His kingdom is peace because it's ruled and governed by who? The Prince of Peace. We'll see that his kingdom will be prosperous. It'll be healthy. It'll be filled with fruit. It'll be peaceful. It'll be calm. It'll be joyful. It'll be a time of unimaginable joy around the world. That people who will be looking at Christ, they'll be speaking about him. The word of God will be in their hearts just as the sea covers the earth, the Bible says. This will be the work of the Lord in the lives of those people. They won't have to speak of Christ. The moment that they think of him, the word will already be in their heart. They'll be having their daily communication with regards to the Lord and with regards to his word as they, as they work. If you've ever read The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, you'll see exactly that. Don't you see exactly that? Let's, let's walk together and let's talk about the things of the Lord and that's what they do. Tell me, when you come together at the end of a church service, one of the most beautiful things you do is talk about the things of the Lord. Can't help it. Can't help it. I love getting together with brethren and speaking about the Lord, speaking about His Word. Sometimes it's iron sharpening iron. We're both sharpening the countenance of one another as we come to an understanding of what the Scriptures teach and say. It's an exciting thing to do. That's what we should be doing and that's what we love doing. And during that time, we'll all be doing it. We'll be doing our work and we'll be thinking about Christ. We'll be doing our work and we'll be thinking about the glory of the kingdom. We'll be doing our work and what a wonderful blessing it'll be as we grow up, as the families grow up around us. During that time, it's going to be a a curious time and we'll talk about that as time allows in next sermons, next messages. Meanwhile, let's take a look where it all begins. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We're going to be going through our Bibles a bit this morning. So if you don't know your Bibles well enough yet, I suggest you leave one finger in an index 
Might be a good idea. Leave a finger in an index. And if you've got one of those digital things, I don't know how they work, so you'll, you'll have to work that one out. Revelation chapter 20. Give me re- reading to verse 15. Revelation 20 verse 1. What I want you to consider is the use of the word a thousand years. I want you to look at that and see if you can justify in any way in your mind whether that's referring to it allegorically, spiritually, or is there it literally? So look at how it reads and read together with me. Revelation chapter 20 verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It's an astounding passage within the Bible. The book of Revelation was one of the final books that was actually codified by the majority of the church, that they recognised it. Many wanted the book of Revelation not to be included within the Bible because to them they thought it was, it was well, it was something that was too mystical, too difficult to understand, too difficult to comprehend. And yet the church, the church who had copies of the Word of God in every language and every tongue, they wanted that book within their own hands. So in the end, the popular or the, the, the leaders of the, of the churches simply gave acceptance to that which the churches had already uh, approved for themselves. Remember that we don't stand here under the leadership of men. 
We stand here understanding that the word of God is what it is. 1,000 years means how many years? Just have a guess. Does it mean 1,000 days? Does it mean 1,000 indefinite periods of time? 1,000 years as we read it within the text of Scripture simply means 1,000 years. It's a definitive period of time. It's spoken about directly in here. You know, there are individuals who will not see that the 1,000 years means 1,000 years. It doesn't matter how God would want to present that it's 1,000 years. had a discussion with an individual many years ago who was arguing that the seven-year tribulation period, and particularly the three and a half years of great tribulation, is allegorical. Simply just, you know, seven um, indefinite periods of time. And I said, so everything with regards to this is an indefinite period of time? The numbers are an indefinite period of time? And he said, yes. I said, what about the six days of creation? Do you believe that was six literal days or do you think that they were six indefinite periods of time? And he goes, oh, no, no, they were literal. Why? Anyway, we went on and having this discussion for a while and I actually asked him the question. I said to him, the Bible makes it really, really clear in a number of different ways that the three and a half years is a literal three and a half years. It tells us it in years, it tells us in months, it tells us in weeks and it tells us in days. I don't know. I'm just curious. And I asked him the question. I said, just, just, just consider for a moment, just for a moment, that God actually wanted you to know it was three and a half literal years. Just, just assume that he did. Other than telling it to you in years, in months, in weeks and in days, how could he express it so we don't stuff it up? Reckon that was a good question? I thought that was a good question. And his answer was, give it to me in hours. And that's when you know, beloved, you can't have a conversation with people that are like that. It's unreasonable. They cannot think in logical terms. They want to hold to what they want to believe, irrespective of all the evidence that goes before them. And this is a real problem. The text tells us really clearly that the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, he's going to be bound and cast into a bottomless pit for a thousand literal years. This will continue until the thousand years should be fulfilled. Verse 3. Those killed for their faith during the great tribulation who did not receive the mark of the beast will live and reign with Christ a thousand years. Verse 4. The dead wicked of the world will not live until that same thousand years are finished. Verse 5. Those who take part in that first resurrection are not going to suffer the second death, that is hell, but will literally reign with the literal Jesus Christ on a literal throne in literal Jerusalem for a literal thousand years. Verse 6. And when those same thousand years are expired, Satan is going to be loosed for a little season to do again what he is doing now, and that is to deceive the nations until that final battle which ends all of history. And there comes a new heaven and a new earth. Those who hate God eternally banished in the solitude of hell, never having to suffer these dreaded Christians again. And those who love God eternally blessed in the fellowship of heaven. The distinction between heaven and hell are complete, utter contrasts. While heaven is light and it's given, that light is given by God the Father, God the Son and the saints. And the saints. The Bible says the saints are going to be shining like the stars in the firmament of heaven. Do you know that? You know, they've all got a different dimness to them, different propensity of light, different level of illumination. Huh. 
wonder if that's got something to do with our works. I don't know. I don't know. Are you going to be shining brightly or are you going to be one of those dim ones up there? <laughs> got to consider that. We have opportunity now to be able to shine bright for the Lord, you know. And I, and I want to do that and I want to encourage you all to do that. Nevertheless, heaven is the direct opposite of hell. hell heaven has absolute fellowship. Hell has absolute solitude. While heaven is light, hell is spoken about with having a darkness that can be felt. While there is joy and peace and comfort in heaven, there is eternal torment in hell. They are absolute contrast. As glorious as heaven is, hell will be seen to be its opposite. Do you understand? Do you understand the work that you have to do with the gospel? Do you understand that it's an urgency? Do you understand that you should be sharing it with people? That you should give them the opportunity to believe the gospel? Do you understand that? I mean, when you, when you understand the nature of hell and the distinction between those two, how do we walk by people without handing them a tract? How do we walk by people without sharing the hope of Christ? I'm not just chastising you, beloved. I do the same thing, you know. But how do we do that when we understand what there is at stake? We who know the truth of the kingdom of the Lord, we should be the first to be out there sharing the gospel of Christ. The second part of this is Christ, the king of the kingdom. Let me tell you about the king of the kingdom. He's the one who's going to be ruling for a thousand years and he's going to be ruling on earth. Jesus is actually going to be coming back. He's going to be ruling from the city of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. Let me tell you about the prince of, the, 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 the prince of peace who is going to be ruling and reigning in the city of peace, Jerusalem. We know him today as Jesus Christ. He is the saviour of the world. He is the one that has been long promised to come again. He's been promised to come through the Old Testament and he goes by many, many names. Specifically related, however, to his literal rule and reign in Israel during this 1,000 year period and extending into eternity. One of his names he is known as the branch. The branch in Isaiah 4 verse 2 and 11 1 it says there that in that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel notice that the branch of the Lord beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 23 Jeremiah chapter 23 Now, I do not have the ability to be able to go through all the scriptures relating to this 1,000-year reign on earth. You've got two pages in your newsletter that I've put together to help you to be able to look through all of those or a number of those verses. I'm not entirely sure if they are exhaustive. I don't think that they are, not by any stretch of the imagination. But to look up those verses, very, very important if you get the opportunity to do so. I want to give you the, um, that opportunity to receive the word with all, with all readiness of mind and then search the scriptures to see if those things were true. Jeremiah, middle of your Bibles and turn right. We'll go past Isaiah. We'll have Jeremiah and then Lamentations. But Jeremiah there, verse 20, chapter 23, verse 5 we're looking at. 
Verse 5 says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Still referring to a time that has never been seen nor known by Israel, Jeremiah wrote again in chapter 33, turn there, 10 chapters forward to verse 15, again referring to the Lord as the branch. It says there, in those days, this is verse 15 of Jeremiah 33, in those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. In verse 16. Has this happened? Just out of curiosity, has this happened? Has the Lord ruled and reigned on earth? Has his reign and his rule been evidently executing with judgment and justice around the world? Do we see that? Is there peace in the city of peace at the moment? Not if you've been really focusing on the news. I know they don't actually share much about Jerusalem in the news. Anyway, there's been a lot of trouble up there. There's been a lot of trouble, as there always is. During the time Daniel refers to iniquity being reconciled in Daniel 9.24, Zechariah also says that God will bring forth my servant, the branch, in Zechariah 3 verses 8 to 9. Turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 6. Now, it's one of the minor prophets. So just before the book of Malachi, you should, should see Zechariah. And the book of Malachi is just before the New Testament. You there? Okay. Let's read verse 12. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch... And he shall grow up out of his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne and he shall be a priest upon his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now, this is absolutely fascinating because here we've got Jesus Christ referred to as the branch. But did you know? And he's building the temple of the Lord. We'll touch on that again in a minute. But did you know that there's another individual that's also known sort of as a branch? He's known as the abominable branch. And this is one who is going to be sitting in another temple of God, showing that he is God. Go backwards in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 14. Many of you will know this passage. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12, you'll identify an individual here. You'll see a name with respect to him and it's the only place in the entire Bible that this name presents itself. Isaiah chapter 14 verse 12, we're going to be reading to verse 19. It says there, Isaiah 14, 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. 
yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? All the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, every one in his own house. But thou art cast out of thy grave like an abominable branch. And as the raiment of those that are slain thrust through with a sword, they go down to the stones of the pit as a carcass trodden under feet. This is he who desires in every way to exalt himself above God. The five I wills of Satan are there. We could see that, we could recognize that. And what's the nature of the kingdom that he's going to be creating? It's one that's going to be, that's going to destroy the earth. It's going to continue to manifest itself in the world's destruction. Incidentally, if your um, version of the Bible replaces the name Lucifer with the title Day Star or Morning Star, can I suggest you burn it? Those are the titles of my Lord Jesus Christ. They are the titles of my Saviour. They are the titles of my King. And these modern translations are attempting to make a devil out of him. And it disgusts me. The name Lucifer is a proper name. And it should not be translated by its definition. There are no names in the Bible that don't have definition. Did you know that? I mean, we don't see the word, the name Jesus everywhere represented as saviour, do we? Yet Jesus means saviour. You know, we don't see the name Emmanuel within the Bible, which literally means God with us, transliterated to God, God with us, do we? No, it's not. It's a proper name. We don't see Noah's name, which is, he shall comfort us. He is the comforter, named as comforter, do we? No. But we've got an individual whose the name of his, his name refers to a light bearer named Lucifer in the Latin. We have it as a proper name, but they, for some reason, decide that they want to give it its definition, which is crazy. Turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You'll recognize and know this passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says simply this, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Did you see it? Did you see it there? Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God. How many I wills did we see in the book of Isaiah? Five of them. Every single one of them seeking to exalt the throne of Lucifer, the devil, above that of God, above the stars of God, above the hope of God. And here we have an individual who during the time of the tribulation will be sitting in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. It's pretty incredible. What do we discover with that? Well, within that you can recognize all the temple will be built. Not the temple that Jesus will build because Jesus builds that one. So there's a different temple here. But Jesus is the branch in Zechariah and he shall build the temple of the Lord. There's no ambiguity there, is there? It's pretty clear that the Lord Jesus Christ will build the temple of the Lord. 
But as for this abominable branch, the man of sin, all we know for certain is that there will be a temple built for him to sit in. That's all we know for certain. Beloved, if you've heard people say that, the, that Lucifer or the devil or the Antichrist is going to give instruction for the building of the temple, that's sort of standing outside the Scriptures because you can't see that in the Bible. All we know for certain is that there will be a temple built. Now, is it possible that within that three and a half year period he could have given that instruction and the temple be built? Yes, it's possible. The only distinction is that in Israel today, they actually don't believe that the Messiah will come until the temple is built. We went to the Temple Institute in Israel and that's exactly what they believe. They believe that the temple needs to first be built to encourage the Messiah to come. They don't actually believe that the Messiah will come to instruct to build the temple. You see the distinction? So all we know for certain in the text is that there will be a temple for Antichrist to sit in, to proclaim himself as God. Christ, whose name is the branch, will govern 1,000 years and build his temple. The abominable branch will not, will not. He's also referred to as the Lord of hosts by Isaiah. Isaiah 24:23 says, Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. Now, this is the Lord of hosts. This is our Saviour and King. These considerations tell us and demonstrate to us that there will be a literal rule on earth directly by God the Son. Who's going to be reigning in Jerusalem? Who? It's Christ here. Has anyone in history, has anyone ever in history reigned that's been known as the Lord of hosts? Anybody? Not that I know of. Did Jesus reign in Jerusalem when he came? He came. He was in Jerusalem. Did he reign? They tried to make him reign, didn't they? They tried. They tried to make him king. They tried to crown him, but he kept on slipping out of their hands. But they wanted to make him king. They identified him as Christ. And it's interesting because even the very day that he was waiting for, that he was hoping that that was the day that they would crown him. What does the text say? It says, because his time was not yet. His time was not yet. That's why they slipped out of their hands. But the time that it was yet, they didn't crown him. They didn't crown him. They didn't put him on the throne. And that was when Jesus lamented that they should have known the very day he would come and present himself as king. We'll talk about that another time. Now this same Isaiah said again in chapter 44, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God, Isaiah 44.6. And in those days that Jerusalem shall actually dwell in safety, Jeremiah speaks of Christ as the Lord, our righteousness, Jeremiah 23.6 and 33.16. The Bible refers to him as the Ancient of Days. He goes by a lot of different names, doesn't he? He's referred to as the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7.13, who in verse 14 was given him dominion, it says, and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. That's, that's quite a kingdom. That's quite a kingdom. Wow. So it's not just a thousand years. 
the Bible prophesied and it spoke about Daniel that his, sorry David, that his throne will be an enduring throne, that his son will sit upon the throne of David forever. Forever. So do we have a limitation to this kingdom at all? We don't seem to have a limitation. There seems to be a, a, a part of it that's a thousand years here, but then the Bible refers to as the destruction of this world and a new heaven and a new earth created. How long the Lord's going to take to do that, I don't know, but I would hazard a guess and say he could do it instantly. I don't know why he tarried so long, personally. I don't know why he waited. Why did it take him six days? He is the Lord. The Lord in Micah 4.7 and Zechariah 14.9 and shall be king over all the earth. This has not happened yet. He's not yet king over all the earth. Christ is not now king over all the earth. He is not certainly ruling with a rod of iron as we're told in Psalm 2 and Revelation 2 and Revelation 12 and Revelation 19. He's not. But he is the most high of Daniel 7, 22 and 24 when judgment is given to the saints, interestingly enough. Judgment is given to the saints and the saints possessed the kingdom. How incredible does the Bible confirm itself? This is the reality of how the Bible interlinks so perfectly. It is not a mystical kingdom now idea. It is not happening now. We don't live in a time with Satan bound. And if one commentator said was perfectly right, he said if Satan is bound now, then his leash is way too long. This speaks to a time yet future. It's, it's not the mess that man is trying to create today. No, it'll be the Son of God, the one of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, of Daniel 3, 25, and of Hosea 11, 1. He is the Son of God. And He will give and He will have the government upon His shoulders, the Bible says. Finally, He is Emmanuel, God with us, in Isaiah 7, 14 and 8, 8, referring to both His first and His second coming, respectively. There's a lot as I mentioned within your newsletters already, but I want you to consider something. When Peter, the apostle, the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he fled from him because they came to take Christ and imprison him and he could see what was going on there, Peter fled the scene, didn't he? He fled the scene with everybody else. Something else happened with Peter distinctly. He had opportunity to affirm Christ. What did he do instead? He denied him. He denied him. Just once? No. He denied him three times. And this is the man who had said he would die for Christ. But what was he looking for? What was he looking for? He was looking for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He was looking to see him crowned, not crucified. He wasn't expecting to see him crucified, but crowned. And you can imagine the confusion that would have gone on within his own mind and heart. Hang on. Is this not the Christ? I mean, wasn't Peter the one that confirmed him? Thou art the son of the living God. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember that? And yet here we have him now confused and not knowing what's going on. Why? Because Israel expected a ruling Messiah, a coming king. But they couldn't help also noticing the other passages of the Bible, could they? The ones that actually referred to him as a suffering servant. The ones that referred to Christ as bearing our sins. By whose stripes we are healed. He's there too. So in their minds, there can only be one of two options. Either we have two messiahs coming once 
or one coming twice. And what we see within the scriptures is clearly the same. One coming twice. I remember being in Caulfield a while ago and I saw a big banner in the front of this uh, Jewish synagogue thing and it says, the Messiah is coming. And some wise guy put again at the end of it. (laughs) I like that. I thought that was great. This is what we see. But then we have Antichrist and his world government and we're going to be looking at that in a moment. (coughs) Turn your Bibles to Revelation 13 as we come towards a close of this message. Still got a little bit to go, but not that much. Or at least a third through. Antichrist and his world government. Bibles, Revelation chapter 13. There is a tremendous amount that can be extrapolated from this passage. We're not going to be going too deeply into it, but you'll be able to see it for yourself. Revelation 13. We're going to be reading from verse 11, (coughs) excuse me, verse 11 to 18. John here speaking about what he's seen. And he says, And I beheld another beast, this is verse 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb. He spoke as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had mark, or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. The devil has desired to rule and reign for thousands of years and there is something that the devil desires more than anything else and that is he desires absolute perfect control he desires to be remember the i wills i will be like the most high god is all knowing isn't he satan desires also to be all knowing everything about you everything that you do all that you do everywhere you go he desires to know you He desires to know your intimate thoughts. He desires to know and to find out how you live, what you're going to be doing, what you're intending on doing. There's been plenty of science fiction movies that have been put out over the last number of years where it seems to preempt crime, doesn't it? Someone wants to stop crime before it actually happens. The only only way you can enforce pre-crime is by having some sort of intimate knowledge of the individual. And there are so many things, and I just can't go into them all. Here, but there are a number of different things that are being dealt with today. But one of the things that we see within this text 
is that there is going to be absolute control. We also see that the mind of man is turning to a reprobate mind, a mind no longer able to function properly. During this particular time of history, the hearts of men will be betrayed. We're already seeing that now. You're looking at the Roe v. Wade thing at the moment. Here you have people who are picketing their right to murder babies. They don't seem to have any problem with that. They say, it's my body, I can do what I like with my body. Well, no, you can't murder your own body and it's not your own body that you're killing. It's that of the child. There's so many other things that are going on that actually betrays the heart of men. Wicked men and women will follow his pernicious ways and that the way of truth would be not known. They long to create their own truth today. And since this abominable perversion of God's institution of marriage has been enacted by the Western world in a matter of one year. It's like about a year. One year, one and a half years, the entire world had completely transformed the institution of marriage. Do you think it's curious that the morality of mankind seemed to have now gone over a cliff? Do you think it's curious that right now man doesn't seem to be able to think properly anymore? They can't discern between what's right and what's wrong. They can't discern between truth and error. Is it curious to you? Look in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Just as an inside understanding of why this world will not necessarily be changed to a holy world without Christ. Romans chapter 1. I'm just going to be reading three, four verses here from verse 28. Because the Bible refers to them as having now a reprobate mind. After they've enacted those things that they do, and now we see a sanctification of that which is unholy to be holy in the institution that God had created with regards to marriage. You know, it's not the government's idea. Does anybody know that? It's not the government's idea. Marriage isn't the government's institution. You can change whatever you like with regards to that. Marriage is God's institution. It belongs to Him. He's the one that defines it. But here... We have this occurring and this is what's evident in the world today. Verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, Inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. And this is the world that we're seeing because the world has been given over to a mind that no longer functions, doesn't work well anymore. Today, boys can be girls, girls can be boys. Boys can be girls, dating a girl, yet think that they're a girl but they're boys liking girls Heh, you try and work it out I can't work it out we had an individual a little while ago who came out believing that he was a homosexual and so he came out as a homosexual as a, as a young man and then he transitioned to become a woman and now apparently he's a lesbian so in the end he's really a guy that likes girls I mean, you work it out. I can't work it out. To me, it's a complete and utter mess. 
you know? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yet, this is an image of a reprobate mind. These are images of reprobate minds. We are now sanctifying that which is not in order. So, where is this plan? How long has it been unfolding? Do we see any hint of a desire for a world to create a world government? A new world order, a new international order? Is there any hint of it anywhere? I think there is. How does it relate to the Great Reset spoken about with such certainty by the elites in the world today? For hundreds of years, biblical Christians have spoken about a one world government. For hundreds of years, biblical Christians had said that the entire universe was created by God, right? We've said that. We said that there was a beginning. There was a beginning to the entire created order of things. But Carl Sagan and all those that were his like said, no, it's always been, it's always existed. And unfortunately, with Einstein's lamina theory, he, he stuffed that up a little bit and he believed that this entire universe had always existed. Well, now they discovered that it was, it began. What did they do? Did they all of a sudden believe in God? No. They started a new theory, didn't they? They thought about the bang and not the banger. We got the exactly the same thing that's happening here. Christians have been speaking about a world government for centuries and now that it's coming to pass people are not thinking anything of it so this is going to be really interesting the video itself is about 10 minutes long and i pray that you'll enjoy it hitler has often protested that his plans for conquest do not extend across the atlantic ocean but his submarines and radars prove otherwise and so does the entire design of his new world order for example I have in my possession a secret map made in Germany by Hitler's government, by the planners of the new world order. And the hope that each of us has to build a new world order. There also exists an extraordinary opportunity to form for the first time in history a truly global society. So that the problem of the Bush presidency will be the emergence of a new international order. Within the next four years, we will see the emergence of a new international the order. The beginning of a new international order. The pieces are in flux. Soon they will settle again. Before they do, let us reorder this world around us. And this present window of opportunity during which a truly peaceful and interdependent world order might be built will not be here for open for too long. Already there are powerful forces at work that threaten to destroy all of our hopes and efforts to erect an enduring structure of global cooperation. Are you optimistic a global system can happen it, from what it, we've heard so far? It, it, it could happen and in fact it's in the work. We needed a new world order. Now much has been said by the Secretary of State and others about the new world order on what kind of new world order we really create. Can it really be said that this is a true new world order when it lacks a true United Nations collective security effort at a new world order? We kept talking about a new world order. Uh, and, and, and... Waxing philosophically about the new world order and everything. A new world order. I think the new world order is emerging. It is a new world order. What do you think America's place in the new world order should be? I think the global voice should be the United Nations. You really need to bring China into the creation of a new uh, 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 world order. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's the very real prospect of a new world order. As all threats recede, 
new threats emerge. The quest for the new world order, a new world order can emerge. This is an historic moment. We have in this past year made great progress in ending the long era of conflict and Cold War. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. But today, with Asia already outproducing Europe, India and China are clearly becoming part of our new order. So, in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, a new world is emerging. It is a new world order with significantly different and radically new challenges. That this crisis, in the way that has developed, will require some kind of a world government. Good evening, everybody. President Obama and British Prime Minister Gordon today calling for a new world order to tackle our global economic crisis. And the president outlined his vision of a new world order in which the U.S. would participate fully. We've got to give them a stake in creating the kind of uh, uh, world order that I think all of us would like to see. So I see a world order in the future with a multipolar uh, world order. I think a new world order is emerging, and with it the foundations of a new and progressive era of international cooperation. We have resolved that from today we will together manage the process of globalization to secure responsibility from all and fairness to all. And one of the ways it will drive the change is through global governance and global agreements. But in a globalized economy, we are going to have to take global responsibilities. And there going to, is going to have to be some semblance of global governance. Never before has a new world order had to be assembled from so many different perceptions or on so global a scale. Nor has any previous order had to combine the attributes of the historic balance of power system with global democratic opinion and the exploding technology of the contemporary period. Uh, you've already heard today that uh, one of, uh, or a number of the people who've actually uh, uh, now got the virus got it in a home situation. And we'll hear more detail about that in due course. But it is uh, both a safe place and a dangerous place. We must treat this uh, new world order, new, this new world of COVID, we must treat this new world of COVID, even in our own homes, with a high level of care and caution. This is a world pandemic. It's a one in 100 year event. So you can expect that we will have transmission uh, from time to time, and that's just the way it is. We've got to accept that this is the new world order. Um, we will be looking at what contact tracing looks like in the new world order. And yes, it will be pubs and clubs and other things if we have a positive case there. Our response may be differently, different if we know that people are fully vaccinated. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. An incredible window of opportunity to lead in shaping a new world order. Um, and, it's, and, you, and you pick the people that run those agencies and the deputies that are pledging allegiance to the new world order. And now is a time when things are shifting.
we're going to there's going to be a new world order out there, and we've got to lead it. We've got to unite the rest of the free world in doing it. So anyway, I'm going to hush up, Mary. Fire away. Well, I'm not surprised. I uh, we have been fighting uh, Putin for the last eight years, and we had three revolutions in our country when we did not agree with what was going on with uh, the direction of where we're moving in. But right now, it's a critical time because we know that we not only fight for Ukraine, we fight for this new world order for the democratic countries. We knew that we are the shield for the Europe. Ladies. And gentlemen, a very, very good morning on what is the first official day of World Government Summit here at Dubai Expo 2020. And the title of this session, Are We Ready for a New World Order? Well, the organizers here are nothing if not ambitious. The fourth industrial revolution. The power of artificial intelligence. Creating the world of tomorrow. Our aim is to shape the future of global through education, health, technology, sustainability, and environment. People's creativity, people's dreams, people's energy. This year, right now, this minute, is really the best time in the history of the world to do something. Collective thinking, collective mind, collective knowledge for humanity. Let's work together. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get this thing done. You know, your family committed all these acts against society, but we just want to let you know the New World Order has no legitimacy. Right. And that we as a people are not afraid, and we are waking up to the robber barons and the big bankers who are looting our economy with the Federal Reserve. Well... Did, um, have, did that surprise any of you? Did that surprise any of you? No one? Really? You'd all seen that sort of stuff before? You could have saved me like hours, you know? You just, if you had told me that ahead of time, I would have, you know? You know, it is incredible. They continually refer to this as a conspiracy theory. Well, if that is a conspiracy theory, then it's well out in the open. There's a point at which we transfer our understanding of what is a conspiracy theory and what is a genuine conspiracy? The word conspiracy simply means with common breath. That's what it means, with common breath. And we have a world that's moving towards that with common breath. And we've had through this, and I'll begin to wrap this up, and I'm sorry that it might have taken a little bit longer than usual. This had been going on for a long, long, long time. The Rhodes Scholarship Foundation was set up many, many years ago for the very purpose of educating and training leaders for a world government, to create a world government. It began with Cecil Rhodes, and he actually set up that foundation. But it goes on. 
You've got the Skull and Bone Society. You've got Freemasonry. You've got the Illuminati. You've got the Council on Foreign Relations. You've got the Trilateral Commission. We've got the Bilderberg Group, the annual Davos meetings. We've got the United Nations, formerly the League of Nations, founded by President Woodrow Wilson. The idea behind it was to form, was formed two centuries earlier um, and it was something that was in the planning. You've got UNESCO, which is the education arm of the United Nations. UNESCO wants to transform our education system to be one that will fit this entity. You've got the Pope who has been recently working towards creating a global education system for our kids. All you needed to do was look at the Australian newspaper on Wednesday this week front page and have a look at what it says with regards to how it's going to retrain your children. What we also recognise with regards to this, in, in 1960, President Eisenhower signed the Joint Senate uh, Declaration 170, promoting the concept of uh, Federal Atlantic Union. The Atlantic Union Committee Treasurer, I don't have him in here, actually, he's talking about the secret societies. This secret society is already well known and Kennedy made mention of it. Have a look at this. For well, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumour is printed, no secret is revealed. Quite an astounding setup, and it's something that had been known for a long, long time. And all of these institutions are interlinked. In one way or another, they are all linked and interlinked. Council of Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission. Yes, yes, that is the Triketa. 666 inverted. Oh, we can, we can sort of see it. People have worked that out. You've got all of these links, all the individuals. There's actually a map with all the people that are involved in so many of these different societies. And it was this gentleman here by the name of um, Alma Roper who actually said, he delivered a, 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 an address titled The Goal is Government of All the World, in which he states this, For it becomes clear that the first step toward world government cannot be completed until we have advanced on the four fronts the economic, the military, the political and the social. That there is in all of this one man that they desire that will rule the world, that will have this complete government structure in hand. Just we have the Lord Jesus Christ for those thousand years, they are looking for a man to rule. But who's it going to be? Well, there was a time not long ago that this fellow was paraded in as if he was the Messiah. It's interesting how they actually refer to him as that. Hang on. Newsweek. He comes in on a donkey. Notice that? It's funny how they're looking for a man to rule the world, but they're actually giving him the attributes of God. The second coming, this is Obama. Some of you might have already seen this. The Messiah is here. 
that he wasn't the only one nor the last one. They actually said the same thing with Europe's saviour, Emmanuel Macron. I wonder who those, those legs are. Could it be Angela Merkel? Could be. And then recently, the most astounding thing that I'd actually heard about was the belief that the Ukrainian Prime Minister may very well be the one who can save the world. Who is this comedian? His audience more mass than men. The Superman Ukrainian? I don't know. Great grandson of the Holocaust, an Eastern heart the West has lost. Nail or carry up his cross, I don't know. But he's got everyone thinking. Yeah, he's got all of us thinking. Can one man save the world in a thousand years? Will they say your name or is this all in vain? Can one man save the world? Will you take my hand? Will you help me stand still in the end? Can one man save the world? getting this? This is a part of this starting to drum into our minds with regards to what the world is looking for. They're looking for a man. They're looking for a man to save the world. They're not looking for Christ who has already promised to come. They're looking for someone else. But it's interesting how they all seem to have the attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting how they're looking for those who would, can you hold my hand? I mean, really? You need to book an appointment. You know, make a time that's available. There's probably a whole bunch of other people who want to hold his hand. That's not going to happen with an earthly man, is it? We have all of these. We have all of these. Then we have an individual here who had long spoken about this. This is former Belgian president Paul Henri Spuck. In 1899-1972, he died. And he is the co-former of the European Union. And this is what he said. We do not want another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all people and to lift, up out, to lift us out of this economic morass into which we are sinking. Send us such a man, and be he God or devil, we will receive him. The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be, manif is going to be made manifest during that kingdom. During the final kingdom that the earth well, once it goes through its turns and its events, it'll be the Lord Jesus Christ who will stand. Daniel 7.27 says, And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. There is a choice, beloved. There is a choice, and the choice is we are either going to follow the branch who is the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him, or we're going to be waiting for the abominable branch to take his seat. One will be building the temple of God, another one will sit in a makeshift one. But the world is going to go through its turns. The question that you have to ask yourself is how are you going to be dealing with this in time to come? If we're here, if we're here, 
we cannot, we cannot be wallowing. We cannot be walking down the streets with our chins dragging on the ground because we seem to be aware of the things that are to come. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, to those who have the greater knowledge also have the greater sorrow. There's a recognition of that and we feel a sense of that within us because we've been speaking about these things and now we're seeing them come to pass. None of us really expected that we would be living in the midst of it. But we are. And beloved, you were created for such a time as this. Any other time in history, you could have been born. You know that? Any other time in history. But you are here today for this time. This time in history. And God doesn't make mistakes. You're here for a reason. You're here for a purpose. Who are you going to be sharing the hope of Christ with? Who are you going to be talking to about the Lord? They are blind to this. They don't know and they won't know until they're in it. But we're aware of so many people that need to know that the Lord Jesus Christ died for their sins. So many people that have not heard it from your own lips. So many people that you haven't invited to church. Start with something like that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for this time. And we thank you, Father, for the wonder (coughs) and the joy of the knowledge that you are coming soon and that you will take your bride to be with you and that afterwards, dear Lord, we will be returning with the Saviour for this wonderful time that this earth will go through. Though in the meantime, dear Lord, it will go through its birth pangs. We pray, dear Lord, that at the end of it, dear Father, there will be the wonderful blessing of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask you, dear Lord, that you would give each one of us wisdom, give to us understanding, give to us, dear Father, the joy and the faith that we need to be able to live in the world that you have planted us in, that we may be encouraged and glorify your name forevermore. We thank you, dear Lord, and we praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.